Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome, Brendan here with Mark. It is episode 250, Big 250, Friday, July the 15th, 2022, and here we go, Mark, Big 250. Um, I'd love to say to our listeners that we have an amazing agenda and incredible stories, but we've just got our usual, uh, which... I think it's pretty incredible sometimes, and it is good. Congratulations to you, Mark, for getting to the 250th and helping with the podcast, which would not be here without you. We've done it, 250. Um, I think we should retire once we get to 500, Mark. Um, That's (laughs) our aim. What do you think? I think it's a. um, if you'd said that a few years ago, when we started doing this, when we first thought that we'd be just talking to a few of our a few of our mates would listen to us, um, I would I would have laughed at you. But now I think it's a fairly reasonable thing to think we're going to get there. I I look forward to this every week, and uh, yeah, I think we'll we will we will think about what happens when we get to five hundred. Yes, that's right. Um, let's just hope my walking stick is in good function mark it's working well when we get to that and my hearing aids are turned up to full so yeah 250 thank you to all our listeners and our new subscribers vetgurus at gmail.com if you want to send a hello to us tell us about where you're from and what you're up to and what clinic you work at and what animal you are currently playing around with or fixing or curing or helping or doing a necropsy on, depending on what time of the day it is. And uh, I think you should also go to our website, vetgurus.com, and poke around there and look at the other 249 episodes. And many thanks to our sponsors. And uh, we did have a, a big shout-out to one of our patrons, Mark, who just resubscribed recently to a $10 a month well, what do we call it, donation, yes, um, and that's to our friend Sandy, Mark. We'll, no, we won't um, mention their, their full details there, but um, many, many thanks to Sandy. He's been supporting us for a very long time and it is much appreciated. It does, it does help and it's a warm, fuzzy feeling, um, not just in our bank account to help pay for the costs of the podcast, but um, Sandy is a good egg, Mark. It is, it is um, one of the many ways that we realise that people are out there listening. The, the, um, the, the emails we get, the uh, people who support us on Patreon, Sandy standing out amongst them. Um, yeah, it does give us a warm fuzzy, doesn't it, Brendan? Yes. Well, I'm going to rip it along this 250th episode, Mark, and I've got just one little news story now. Yeah, we're having a bit of a chat about this one off air before we started about the um, the importance of this one or lack thereof. Um, it was an interesting little article, and the title is establishing. It's based. It's a paper that was original research article in the Frontiers of Veterinary Science journal, establishing an MRI based protocol 
and Atlas of the Bearded Dragon Brain. And basically they, they anaesthetized a few bit of dragons uh, using IV alfaxalone, which is what is our IV induction agent of choice um, for you and me, Mark, um, for both of us. And they created an atlas of the brain in three planes of bearded dragons, uh, identifying nine regions of interest. <laughs> and they scanned for around about 35 minutes to obtain a neuroanatomical reference, which is now published that people can use, which will help if they're looking at um, some scans of bearded dragon bones. Um, I must admit, Mark, I haven't sent any. I have recommended to some of my clients to have a CT of bearded dragons, but I can't remember. Maybe I have, but I can't remember the last one, if ever, that I've um, received back a CT scan from the place we refer them to. Do, have you done many or send men, many off to have a CT done? We, or an MRI, we, sorry? We have, um, rec- like you, recommended it quite well, quite a number of times. Um, we have had the good fortune uh, at one point to um, have an employee who um, his, his previous, immediate previous employer had done some pro bono Bearded Dragon CTs, and um, so they were pretty entertaining to look at. Uh, but we haven't done any diagnostic ones, just like you, Brendan. And I do think that's the difficulty, as the the for the because the 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 vast majority of conditions that you're going to recommend MRIs for are well dire. Um, many people are not going to fork out the considerable sum to have their worst and our worst fears um, confirmed. So um, I think there will come a time when it's more cost-effective to get these and this reference will be valued, yes. uh, valued at that time. But It certainly will. Um, so that's my one and only news story, Mark, but um, I think in the future, who knows, once we get to episode 500, Mark, um, perhaps it'll be common for clinics to have an MRI and or the only other clinic. comment I had about that article, Brendan, was that the researchers seemed unduly concerned about anaesthetizing the bearded dragons. I, I am. Um, that's probably one of my lesser considerations if we've got to get an MRI done. I'm perfectly happy to, uh, and if, if we were to, I would be happy to anaesthetize the lizard. You would be too, wouldn't you? Yes. I did notice that that they 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 almost made that as a subset of the their results there that they um, were quite proud of the fact that they worked out a, an anaesthetic protocol that could work or does work in bitter dragons. But we certainly are more than happy to use alfaxalone IV as an induction and an anaesthetic agent in bitter dragons. And um, um, yeah, I feel very relaxed about reptile anaesthesia, Mark. I'm, I'm, I, I, I enjoy the days when I've had reptiles to anaesthetise. I, I find it quite quite zen-like, Mark. Okay. I don't know about you. What about am- so? What well, have you I was got for us, Mark? About amphibians, because that's that was my segue to um, my story about the pumpkin toadlets, which have been all over social media the last few weeks. They're tiny, tiny um, anurans, uh, frog relatives, and. Um, and some researchers in southern Illinois um, have uh, taken a whole bunch of um, footage of how 
bad these um, toadlets are at, um, well, not so much jumping, but landing, um, that, um, that they would, um, you know, give them a reason to jump and they would, you know, jump, but they would land m- most awkwardly or clumsily. And, um, and really, it was a bit of a shock that um, animals whose primary reason, um, you know, primary escape mechanism resulted in such a series of awkward aerial manoeuvres. Um, so the interesting thing was that the researchers have done exactly the sort of thing that we were just talking about, a series of CT scans of the little amphibians. They only measure about uh, 10 to 12 uh, millimetres long. They're tiny. And what they uh, discovered was that... Um, the very small vestibular apparatus, the structures within the uh, toadlet's ears that uh, allow it to orient itself in space, were so small they felt that um, the the tiny dimensions would interfere with the viscosity of the fluid within the canals and therefore interfere with the rapid ability of the toad to orient itself in space and therefore contribute to its clumsy landings. But I have got to say, Brendan, I've done a little bit of research about this topic on my own. Um, you're always telling me to do some research. And uh, and I've had a look uh, at a number of Australian amphibians who are of the same dimension. And I would like to say to you that... Um, Small size is no impediment to elegant landing and escape. I think there's something else going on here rather than just the absolute size of the vestibular apparatus in the head of the pumpkin toadlet. That's my comment, Brendan. Excellent work, Mark. Excellent work. And yes, when I read this article, I thought immediately the similar sort of process as what you were thinking, that it just didn't seem to make sense, did it? And they have a, we'll have a link to this in the episode. Uh, go to vetgurus.com and click on this episode. They have a little video of these little toadlets jump in and, well, land in or crash in, as I, I suppose you could call i tell you what, when I first viewed that video, Mark, and I presume you've viewed that 10-second or 15-second video there, it reminded me very much like your days when you used to play basketball um, <laughs> and you used to go um, try and go for a, um, a two-pointer there, Mark, and um, used to crash down. Oh, right. That's uh, so true. Yeah, so. Massive leap, but awful leap. <laughs> I'm sorry to be, um, sorry to be no, blood, no, but um, I it... Appreciate, um, I appreciate the comparison. <laughs> but, yes, that's... Um, so what do you think could be going on with them? Why are the, I mean, it is so bad, their jumping technique here, that I'm surprised that that species is not extinct by now from donging themselves on the head and um, traumatic encephalopathy going on there. I think um, the, the, you know, they do talk about um, some of the tough skeletal features, the bone, they, these toads have bony back plates which protect them from... The, most of the trauma of, of the very awful lands. <laughs> but I think um, I think it's just a matter of they live in a forest. Um, the researchers, when they actually go hunting them, um, they're very difficult to see. They're so, you know, while they're called um, pumpkin toadlets, uh, partly because of the rough shape of them and um, some of them have 
are brightly coloured. But in the leaf litter of the rainforest where they occur, they're just about invisible. And um, and I think uh, that it's probably the case that if they, it's the jump, the start of the jump is the saving part of you know of surviving. If they can launch themselves quickly. Um, and then roll away into the forest, however, and then stay very still, um, I think they're probably safe. So I think all their effort's gone into the rapid, um, powerful leap, much like me, um, and not much um, has gone into the landing um, because uh, they're, they're already safe. Um, so it doesn't really matter. That's my theory anyway, Brendan, and I'm sticking to it till it's proven otherwise. You're full of the mark, and I love it. That's what I love about you, Mark. Um, and I think that is our segue to our main topic for this 250th episode. I thought we should chat about how we got to where we are within our careers especially and maybe where we're heading to, Mark, because we often get asked about how how not only to get into exotic and unusual pet veterinary medicine but also what journeys we took to get where we are or where we've been, um, perhaps where we're going to as well, Mark. So I thought it was a, a good topic for the 250th. And I, and I think we should start off with just having a little bit of a chat, which we often do when we get together, when we, re- we reminisce, Mark, about how we slowly made our way into exotic pet medicine. And um, I suppose, well, I'll talk a tad about myself first, Mark, in that when I first graduated and we weren't... We won't state the particular year that we graduated because it was a fair few years ago. Let's just say it's well over 20 and probably over 30 (laughs) that um, we graduated. And I went into small animal practice when I first graduated and that was a a little two-person vet clinic in Melbourne here in the suburbs of Melbourne in Victoria, Australia, and it was just me and the boss as it used to be in the old days and gee those tough old days mark and i think you had similar sort of process which we'll probably talk about shortly where it was i was on call every second night um there was no such thing as there was probably one or two emergency centers in the whole of melbourne but a long way away so most clinics did their own after hours and I had a pager, the old pager mark. Um, somebody would phone the clinic number and it would go to a, a live person, an answering machine um, service, which somebody sat at home and they would answer on behalf of several businesses. I don't know whether you ever had one of these, Mark, but um, it was a, a lovely lady who ran, ran this service for us, but she would answer, you know, Bob's plumbing service and... and Brendan, the vet clinic as well, and uh, depending on which phone number was called, um, she would answer appropriately. So she would try. She would basically she would vet the calls a little bit. So if there was something silly like you know what do I wear my dog or cat with, and somebody's ringing up drunk at three in the morning, then she would answer the call and say go away and phone the vet clinic in the morning. So it was good in that respect. But otherwise, she would then hit type out on her um, little pager system and um, the page would beep and we get a little um, comment saying, you know, um, Mr. Smith's puppy is having trouble giving birth. Um, can you please call Mr. Smith? Um, so that's, that was um, <coughs> quite a challenge. 
especially when you had several after hours that um, kept you up for a fair bit of the night and then one in two weekends as well. So it was um, fairly full on as far as that. But the reason why I took that job in that particular practice was it was a bit of a luxury at that time. I did have one day off a fortnight, Mark. Um, they, uh, I had every second weekend off, but I also had a Wednesday off um, every second Wednesday. And I took the opportunity to travel to a wildlife park every second Wednesday and do some volunteer work there because I heard they were having difficulty obtaining a vet who was interested in, in wildlife or zoo work. And I thought this is a good opportunity, something a little bit different on my day off. So I used to travel up to the wildlife park and just charge them cost for um, drugs and equipment and they'd feed me for the day and I'd learn a bit about wildlife and the animals that were there at that um, zoo, basically. And they had a fair reptile collection and that's where I became particularly interested in, in reptiles, but they also had a reasonably good Australian animal collection, koalas and wombats and um, echidnas, etc., um, kangaroos. So um, it slowly built from there. And then, then um, I stayed at that practice for probably one and a half years or so. And then during that time, uh, towards the end of that, I was asked to do a, a locum, a fill-in vet job at one of the zoos here in Victoria when they were short of, of a vet. Um, so I did a couple of stints at one of the major offshoots of the main zoo here in Melbourne and um, seemed to enjoy that. And then I did the usual thing, which a lot of vets around our generation used to do, Mark, um, and I think some of the youngsters still do it these days when they graduate. They work for a year or so and then they do a bit of a travelling or a working holiday and I did the working holiday in the UK, in England, which a lot of the Australian vets do and it was fantastic because you not only were paid very well, you had free accommodation and the place I worked at, we had a, I had a whole four-bedroom house to myself and... The practice also had uh, had a car that I could use, a diesel little van that was free for my use during the time I was working, but also during the, my days off. And the practice was large enough where they literally had a, a, a Bowser, a, a, a petrol pump, um, a gas pump um, at the um, at the clinic, Mark. Um, I don't know whether I ever told you this. So um, it was free to fill up the, the little tank of the, of the diesel and um, head off for the weekend when I had weekends off. And I had a wonderful time um, working there for several months. And then I applied. I'd heard on the grapevine that there was a master's program being developed back here in Melbourne at, at the zoos in wildlife medicine. And I applied and I was lucky enough to to be accepted. And then I cut my working holiday short to head back and started my master's degree in wildlife and I became a zoo vet for two or three years. So that was sort of the start of my process of getting into exotics and, and zoo work. How did you how did you sort of get where you are or were, Mark? Well, it's eerie, Brendan, because so many times you and I have a discussion and there are echoes of my experiences in yours. And just like you, I graduated and, and got into a small animal practice. It was a, it was a practice that had a bit of greyhound work in it as well. Um, and and same almost, I listening to you talk about pages and out of hours and um, the hours involved, it, it's 
uh, eerie how similar all that sort of stuff was. And there's probably a whole cohort of us who um, who did essentially the same thing. At that point, um, after I'd been working in that job for a few years, though, um, unlike you, I didn't end up um, travelling overseas and doing a working holiday. I did not. Um, oh, jeez, I am genuinely jealous of the Masters in Wildlife Medicine, and, um, and but I didn't do that uh, at that time. Um, uh, I opened a practice, um, and that was, um, well, just a little bit before you opened yours, I think, um, but, um, but that ended up taking a, a whole lot of time. And then once the practice was... A little bit stable. I did much the same sort of thing as you. I began a, an informal externship, I called it, um, at Taronga. I'd go down each Wednesday um, and spend time in the VQC and, and uh, learn as much as I could about um, all the exotic animals. I got to help with uh, a bear anaesthetic one time and uh, got to uh, um, uh, learn a little bit about uh, rectals in giraffes. Um, but um, unlike you, they never never turned out to be an opportunity to pursue that directly. But the flames were fanned, Brendan, and uh, my interest in those more unusual uh, captive animals, the animals that were pets, um, uh, got increasingly, um, uh, the flames rose higher and higher. And so we would uh, actively pursue those, the birds and reptiles uh, around the Newcastle region, the, the rabbits and guinea pigs and ferrets, the rats, all the things that were unusual and try and do them at a standard that was uh, beyond what anyone else could do. Um, and and so we ended up accruing those um those uh, sorts of patients and clients in our practice. Um, and I think it was around, you know, that was probably at, that, at about that time was, um, was when we started communicating about cases. And so was, that was a bit about the time that you started your practice. Is that right? It probably was. Thinking back to that was probably early 2000s, um, something like that, I think, Mark, um, roughly, which um, maybe a tad earlier than that. Um, and interestingly enough, you mentioned about that you just accrued the cases and that's what, you know, the next step in my my progression with the career was I'd, I'd worked as that zoo vet for a, a few years and then went back to private practice and, and um, saw the opportunity to purchase this little shop front not far from where... where where I was living, which is where I still am located, and thought, gee, it's nice to only travel 15 minutes to, to work. <laughs> and um, and then I decided um, let's just go and purchase that little practice. Um, there was a period in between um, after leaving the zoos where, where I was just doing locum work and still building up my exotics um, and working part-time at several vet clinics as well. Um, but it, it hasn't changed as, as far as the, the aspect um, that we and, and the comments we usually make to graduates. or oh, one of my dogs has just yelped. Um, as far as um, if you want to get into exotics, um, just just get out there and start doing them. And, and if if you build it, they will come and it certainly applies, doesn't it, I do it, Mark, think, that, although I reckon... Um, Reflecting on our time, Brendan, I think that um, I, I know uh, locally where we set up 
there was no one doing that work. And a lot of the practices were, were very happy to um, refer cases to us um, to allow us to work them up. And that um, referral process, I think it engendered a certain respect from the clients. Um, but I think it, compared to today, I think um, it is a little bit harder for, uh, for people who have an interest in exotic animal medicine and surgery. Uh, but I think the same general principles apply. You have just got to put yourself out there and try and set yourself up with a support network. Um, you know, we, we uh, found each other. I know it sounds bromantic, um, but, um, but we had a real, I felt I had a relatively small um, support network, you being a key part of it. Um, but I think uh, that's one of the things that is different these days that um, I think more recent graduates. Yes, you're correct. You are correct. More competition, yeah. I suppose, is one yeah. way of putting it, isn't it? Um, in that there's more more clinics that have that interest in the unusual pecs. But I think it shouldn't deter you if you're still keen on um, at all. I think it opens up more fit. opportunities. Um, there's practices now that do nothing but exotics, and uh, and I know they're looking for for staff all the time and so um yep definitely put yourself out there gain experience in the small animal practice if you enjoy it more and more then look for those practices that only do those animals and develop your experience and if you are working in yes and if you are working in an out of the way place or a country practice um, a rural practice then uh, it gets back to the, the same again that you, you may think that gee that nobody owns a snake or a rabbit in the middle of nowhere in this little country town but you'd be surprised how many people will come out of the woodwork with their animals um in the, in those country practices so um that in those sort of aspects it would be or, or those situations it, it, it's a little bit more like what it was like for us when we first started there mark so yes so that's where i think where we got and you, you you're spot on with that we started communicating and sharing um, cases Basically, together. Basically, I was asking you um, questions. That's let's be frank I, about it. But there was. I think you've got it the opposite way around there, mate. Um, perhaps we're both stumbling in the dark. Was more 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 accurate. Um, and and then we were we we decided, hey, we the, there must be sh surely more of us out there in private practice that need. Um, to get together and discuss our failures um, and our successes when they do occur. And that's when you and I um, decided to approach the Australian Veterinary Association. We helped set up the um, what's now called the Unusual Pet and Avian Veterinarians Group. Um, so I think we, we, were, we have been and we still are quite proud of the fact that we helped develop that, that group that's still very active today. Um, I feel very minded very individuals, as you, as you mentioned, it's our tribe, don't yes, you, Mark? It, is, it definitely is our tribe. And I'm so, I often talk about the things in life that um, I've been fortunate, um, the way in the ways in which I've been fortunate. And one of them was um, I'm the just being involved at that early stage and and getting the ball rolling and and uh, ensuring that there were the prerequisites to have the formal group. But once it got going, Brendan, it was, it developed its own critical mass and it, and, it, and it's still growing today. And um, and certainly there, there's, uh, we were we were right. We weren't, well, we might have been the only ones 
blundering around in the dark, but there are a lot of people with interest in this area and trying to do it in an outstanding fashion. And they've grown to be, um, well, outstanding uh, colleagues and friends. And, and uh, yeah, just finding your tribe like that, as we did with um, UPAV, uh, yeah, it's been one of the great fortunes of my life. And for those wanting, again, to get more into exotic pets, um, join in all the groups or their local groups. And that's, and, you know, the other ones we always mention, the Association of Reptilian and Amphibian Veterinarians, which is a worldwide organisation. They have local branches, the Association of Exotic Mammal Veterinar- Veterinarians as well. And also your local zoos, contacting them and the vets there um, and any equivalent groups to our our UPAV group here in Australia, Mark, um, and just 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 hanging around with them. Um, you learn so much, What's, don't you? This, it's the, the old hanging around with people smarter than you and it makes, makes you um, appear smarter, or well, that's what I think when I hang around with them all. And uh, you, you just absorb so much amazing information and, and the, you know, I just love all the case reports uh, at the conferences or our discussions and the... The, the the ways people think of tackling these novel problems of novel species species that we're seeing all the time. I, I agree entirely. It's been um uh, to go to those conferences and and I think there's two things about um becoming involved in in any of those groups um is that the first one is that by osmosis you do you don't even realise it as you go along. It, it at university you go through that formal process of studying and and acquiring knowledge and then testing that you have acquired it and but the the association with other veterinarians interested in your area leads to a much more um, diffuse process and you learn by osmosis and it's amazing how much you acquire just in those discussions and they don't always have to be at round tables or within within the didactic circumstance of a lecture but um, even in between um, meetings, talking to people um, at uh, at happy hour or um, at coffee or lunch, um, that, that uh, opens up new avenues. But the other thing about um, being involved in those groups, and you highlighted it quite correctly, is that it's not just the knowledge. Um, it's like you were saying about hearing through the grapevine that there was uh, um, something going on that you might be able to apply for. No matter if you're disconnected, you won't hear that stuff. Um, whereas if you're talking to people regularly, if you're on discussion groups that uh, that are associated with UPAV or whichever relevant uh, local uh, veterinarian organisation have, you'll hear about that stuff and and jobs and and uh, um, uh, um, cadetships and whatnot, and then you can take advantage of them and promote your career. Yep. Absolutely, Mark. And just briefly, do you want to talk about um, the process, what's been happening, where it developed from there um, as far as your practice and doing mainly exotics and where it's progressed from there and any, you know, like mentoring or teaching or anything like that that you've that, that you progressed to from from that? For sure. It's it, one of the things that um, oh, probably, you know, one way or another, um, as both you and I have accrued that knowledge, um, we've uh, been able to connect with people who um, are involved in 
you know, either teaching students or um, maybe with new graduates or um, there is a whole series of um, of avenues that open up as you go through that process. And, and I find that's one of the things about um, that I really enjoy. There's many things I enjoy about UPAV, but the desire for almost everyone involved to share their knowledge and, and teach and become involved in um, in educating others. Um, and I know that process has become even more formal for you. You've, you've uh, held positions at Melbourne University um, and, um, and crikeys, I've always um, uh, uh, regretted um, uh, the, t- the Townsville trips that um, uh, you and the the two bobs would go on um they they would have been excellent brendan and so you've had opportunities to to develop that educational educator um role as well yeah and i think we're both lucky in that we sort of fell into all those aspects um it wasn't sort of planned like well certainly like me like most of my life it just sort of developed um and just just the opportunities arose and yes one one of the one of the most enjoyable teaching sort of um, periods I had was when I would travel up to northern Queensland once a year for about seven or eight years to be paid to give lectures in the exotics um, module for final year vet students up at James Cook University in in Townsville and that was fantastic with the two yeah the two bobs so they used to call us the three amigos Mark uh, I still do and we had a lovely time. We we catch up every every year and have a great time and uh, get paid for it. So it was it was wonderful. Um, yes, and I was fortunate enough to to give some teaching or lectures and and tutorials and um, necropsy sessions and and various things at University of Melbourne for for many years as well um, until the the COVID cull occurred um, with a lot of universities and they they cut a lot of the part-time or casual lecturers and I haven't been doing any teaching there since 2020 or so um, although I'm still involved with with um, placements um, clinical placements placements of, of final year students from that university in my practice um, and also been lucky enough to do some teaching for nurses as well for the last five or maybe seven or eight years I think um, with a Bachelor of Veterinary Nursing at um, Melbourne Polytechnic it's called here in Melbourne and, and that's been very enjoyable and I, I actually find the teaching more relaxing than 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 vetting, Mark. Uh, <laughs> you know, um, I, um, I get quite um, uh, nervous about um, talking in front of lecture theatres. You are a natural, just so funny and entertaining, and um, and I'm no, no no good, but for putting I, people. I just, I just much prefer to. I'd much prefer telling a bad joke to a to a room of, of nurses or vets than uh, having dropping a pedicle um, in a surgery mark. Um, so that's the way I look it's at a, it. The really interesting that, thing that, about uh, my pathway through this, Brendan, is that um, each time that I've thought, oh, I'm going to get involved in this, whether it's UPAV or the AVA more generally or other parts of our profession, each time I've, um, uh, whether it's even... Um, some of the mentoring roles that both you and I have played, um, each time I think, oh, here's my opportunity to give back. I've gotten so much from this profession. 
Um, and this is the way that I'm going to give back to it. Each time I do that, and I think that, I end up getting much more out of the endeavour, whether it's being involved with the boards or, you know, I always, I feel like I always come out in front. It's like this podcast. Um, it, um, it sometimes people might say to me, oh, this must be such a chore to do that every week and um, why are you giving yourself uh, to that? And, and I'd say, well, I'd probably be talking to Brendan anyway, but I get so much out of it. So I think that's one of the things about the teaching, the, the, um, the contribution to our professional association. Um, it just always enriches our lives. Yep. It's a win, 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 Mark. Um, <laughs> I love your quintuple and... uh, um, bookkeeping. Win, 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 win the, in every column. And I think it's something, you know, as far as our our careers, we sort of transitioned, haven't we, to where well, you've transitioned to the other side, out the other side, but um, to doing more of sort of mentoring and and, um, and teaching and, and uh, a little bit less of the clinical work um, and, and having the luxury of being able to, I suppose, in one respect, have a little bit of... A little bit of history or a little bit of, um, um, I was going to say wisdom, but I don't think it applies to me, um, that we can impart or at least give some um, um, ideas to to younger veterinarians as far as, um, you know, don't do what I did. Um, <laughs> this is why. Um, and, yeah, I, th- I think it's enjoyable that. So it's a, it is a transition, isn't it? And, and um, you know... Uh, Along that pathway, I think, and we've mentioned it several times before, although we're just chatting about primarily how what our veterinary careers are um, always have a non-veterinary hobby or or, um, or interest or interests um, that that you actively pursue and that you you know um, some I think some people have to literally act actively um, put it into a diary in order to force themselves to take time away from from the veterinary sphere in order to look after their mental health and these days it's becoming more and more important um, to do that so you know making sure that you do have other interests outside your main main career path even though um, there's a there's a lot of crossover between you know we we've been lucky enough to do a to a particular niche of veterinary medicine that, that we almost regard as our hobby as well, um, but we we still need to step back and be able to de-stress um, with our other our other um, our other little hobbies, etc. Um, whether that may be photography or or other sort of um, things that you do, and it might be just reading a book or whatever. But it's it's something that we like to stress to to some of the um, vets that are not as experienced um, that are struggling a little bit with that work-life balance. It is, it is an interesting thing that uh, we we used to talk a lot about work-life balance and it's almost become a little bit trite in one way because it's one of those cliches that's been used so frequently. But I really believe in the essential truth that you will last longer, you will stay healthier, your mental health will be better. I think all of us that are that have gone through a veterinary degree that have the wherewithal 
um, and the doggedness to get through a veterinary degree. We can work 60 hours a week and have nothing else in our life for some time, but there will come a point in all of us, in each of us, none of us is uh, impervious, uh, none of us is uh, able to keep that up for a whole career. Things will happen. And I think, as you said, Brendan, most wisely, as uh, you, you, you talk down your wisdom, but I think that um, actually scheduling that stuff is a huge step. I know so many vets who talk about their their um, their sport or their their other interests, and um, and then they actually never quite get round to pursuing them with the vigor that they should. Um, and I think taking the time to go, okay, on this day, I'm not thinking anything about that, and I'm um, and I'm going to schedule something that I have to do. I'm not just going to uh, veg out and then return a little bit refreshed to work. I'm going to pursue whatever it is you want to do, but scheduling it's yes. key. You're so right. Yes. Set the alarm clock on that day off and, and say, I am still going to get up at maybe sleep in for an hour and get up at 8 a.m. or whatever and, and get out there and take some photos or, or go to the gym or go for a bushwalk or whatever you're. you're your hobby is that you um, enjoy and that just takes your mind off veterinary medicine or surgery, Mark, yes. Um, well, I think we've put most of our listeners to sleep as usual, Mark, um, with, our, with our ramblings here in this one, but um, I don't think we had covered sort of a, a summary of how we got to where we are and where we're, well, who knows where we're going within our veterinary careers. But so I thought it would be a good one to have for our 250th. And thank you again, listener and listeners, um, for hanging in there with us. And we have amazingly a fair number of listeners who have listened to that 249 episodes, Mark. And that absolutely blows me away. Um, well, from, I, I, I want to take this opportunity to thank you at 250 and congratulate you for lasting this long with me. And um, and I, like you, I'm, I'm um, completely blown away that we have lasted this long and that there are people that have listened all along. So get in touch with us, tell us what you think, and uh, um, we look forward to talking to you over the next few weeks. We'll talk to you then. for listening to the vet podcast by the vet gurus don't forget to visit us at the website vetgurus.com where you can subscribe view show notes listen to previous episodes and more you can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi thanks again and see you next time you